From the first century AD right up to the present day, Christianity has had its critics and its opponents. Here on Search for Truth Radio, we have a series of four weeks talks on the defence of the Christian faith. Our Bible teacher Brian Johnston takes a look at the present day attacks by atheists and others of similar belief systems. And in this series, Sowing in Hard Soil, Brian debates the defence of the Gospel from four viewpoints, all beginning with the letter C, creation, conscience, communication and Christ. It's the second study today, the second week. Last week, Brian brought reasoned argument via the evidence of the creation. So this time, we're directed towards the human conscience. But more of that later, because Brian's introduction brings thoughts of summer holidays. Here's Brian. Thanks, John. Each summer, I'm involved with many others in running Bible camps for youngsters. The aim is to train young people to think through for themselves what the Bible teaches. Camps like this have been taking place for many decades around the world. They're still effective. They're even seen to be effective. That must be the case because they're being copied by those who have an alternative agenda. Rival camps have in recent years been launched in the United Kingdom. Camps which are aimed at promoting a humanist or atheist philosophy. Promotional material for these camps stress they aim to encourage critical thinking and a scientific approach all geared to helping youth reach their own conclusions. Well, any Christian camp I've ever been involved in has also aimed to encourage critical thinking skills and personal decision-making. So what's the difference? Simply a different framework of beliefs. No evidence, certainly none about past events, speaks for itself. Evidence has to be evaluated using critical thinking. But that thinking itself operates based on a set of background beliefs or assumptions, whether they're atheistic or Christian. To imply otherwise is to admit we're self-deceived. For the reality that all human reasoning takes place within a framework of beliefs has readily been acknowledged by some great men of science. The whole point then becomes which belief system is the best to reason from while explaining the evidence. At the beginning of the letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul sets out how the Christian belief system can be easily defended. This, it has to be said, was not his primary goal, but in the space of the first three chapters of Romans, the Apostle Paul uses no less than four arguments which can serve the purpose of defending the Christian faith at the most basic point of arguing for the existence of God. And the provocative claim of the Bible, found twice in Romans chapters 1 and 2, is that it's really the humanists and atheists who have no defence, who don't have a leg to stand on, who are simply without excuse. In this series of four programmes, we're looking at each one of Paul's four arguments in turn. Today we come to the second, which is found in Romans chapter 2, and concerns the testimony of our conscience. Here's what Paul has to say, and it'll be the basis for our talk today. It's from Romans chapter 2 verse 14. Paul says, For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves. In that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. Many everyday expressions in the Western world have come from the Bible in its King James Version form. 
And what we've just read contains an example of that. When we read the words, a law to themselves. Interestingly, when we hear people being accused of being a law to themselves, it seems to be generally implying that they're rebellious and out of control. But that's not how the Bible uses it here. In fact, it's the very opposite. Paul was saying that it was to the Jews that the law with its Ten Commandments was given. These commands weren't formally given to non-Jews or Gentiles. But even so, when Gentiles end up doing, by instinct, the very things which the law commands, then they are demonstrating that the same law has in fact been written on all of our hearts. So it's correct behaviour that's evidence of a hidden law, written not on an external stone table, but actually inside of us, on the tables of human hearts. And you will notice, please, that Paul describes it as the law. It's God's law. This law, written on human hearts, is the basis for our conscience. And it's this that shows that we're moral beings. But how is this a second evidence for God's existence? Paul's already used the wonder of creation as his first evidence for God's existence, back in chapter 1 of Romans. Now in chapter 2, he proceeds to a second form of evidence. Because it's here, as we've seen, that he draws our attention to the moral law within. Yes, those last three words were quoted from Immanuel Kant, the 18th century German philosopher who said, Two things fill the mind with ever new and increasing wonder and awe, the starry heavens above me and the moral law within me. These two things, mentioned by Immanuel Kant, capture respectively the two points we're drawing out from the Apostle Paul's first two chapters written to Christians at Rome. We were asking, how is this moral law within a second evidence for God's existence? Well, from the atheistic point of view, apart from their social consequences, there's really nothing basically wrong with many socially unacceptable things. Things like when a man rapes a woman. Because without God, there isn't any absolute standard of right and wrong which imposes itself on our conscience. Without God, morality becomes nothing more than a matter of personal taste or social conditioning. This is exactly the point many people have pressed on me in conversations about faith, when they try to tell me that our attitude to something like rape basically only comes down to what our parents and society have taught us. You've got to then ask them where their parents got their values from, and where their grandparents got their values from, and so on, all the way back to the first ever humans. And at that point, it's a problem. For blind forces of nature can't explain the origin of any absolute morality. The late J.L. Mackey of Oxford University, one of the most influential atheists of our time, admitted, if there are objective values, he said, they make the existence of a God more probable than it would have been without them. There is, he said, a defensible argument from morality to the existence of a God. Notice his words, a defensible argument. On the other hand, Paul in Romans has just said atheists have no defence for their claim that there is no God, while proceeding to give at least four defences of Christianity in terms of assuring his readers of God's existence. So Paul's locked horns with the atheists, and we're faced with a clear-cut choice, and it's one we can easily put to the test. Here it is. 
on the one hand, the Word of God says objective moral values really do exist, and deep down we all know it. On the other hand, atheism says objective, absolute moral values don't exist, while admitting that if they did exist, that would give the game away. Richard Dawkins agrees that rape is wrong, but concedes that in arriving at that view, his value judgment is every bit as arbitrary as the fact we've evolved, he says, five fingers rather than six. We quote Professors Mackey and Dawkins only so as to give assurance that atheists, as well as Christians, agree on this as a fair test. It's fair and accurate to judge the question of God's existence based on judging the question of the existence or otherwise of objective, absolute moral values. So then, suppose you take a group of people and ask each of them, do you like vegetables? Some will say, I like vegetables. Others will say, I don't like vegetables. And that's fine. It's a subjective thing, a matter of personal taste. But what if, instead of asking the question, do you like vegetables, we were to ask, is it okay to torture children for fun? You'll surely agree that we've crossed a boundary line. You wouldn't expect the same group of reasonable people whose personal tastes on vegetables varied to show the same spread of opinion on this question, would you? But why not? Because, I submit, this is no longer a subjective matter of personal taste. We've moved on to an altogether different matter, one that's an objective matter of right and wrong. One famous writer, C.S. Lewis in fact, illustrates the difference by making this comparison. He said, The reason my idea of New York City can be truer than yours is because New York is a real place, existing apart from what either of us thinks. On the other hand, if we were trying to compare ideas about some imaginary city, then neither idea could be truer than the other because there's no basis for any comparison. Our first example about vegetables was like that. But returning to our second example of torturing children, the reason why we'd agree that one reaction is truer than the other is because a real standard of absolute morality exists apart from whatever happens to be our own personal tastes and preferences. Torturing children for fun is not a morally neutral act. It's an outrageous moral abomination. It wouldn't matter in which culture we performed the experiment. We've identified a consensus on morality which transcends culture. Actions like rape, torture, child abuse and so forth aren't just socially unacceptable behaviour. They're morally abominations. Things which are absolutely wrong Similarly, love, equality, generosity and self-sacrifice are really good. And the point is this, if objective values cannot exist without God, but we find that they do exist, then it logically follows that God also exists. Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, when the Blood, who his love will not remember.
The fact that God does exist brings consequences for the human race. Hebrews 11 verse 6 tells us, For he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. The reward is perhaps to find him, but when we do, we discover that God condemns us because of our sinful state. But he's made provision for forgiveness through Christ's blood shed on the cross. The reward for us of being made right with God is not earned. It is the free gift of eternal life and forgiveness for sin for the believer in the gospel message. That's God's good news. Hence the hymn today, Here is Love, Vast as the Ocean. Now I'd like to remind you that all our talks are available online or as a transcript book and you can get the book by downloading a copy from churchesofgod.info forward slash media. If you're not able to do that and would like a hard copy book sent to you, just write in and ask for Sowing in Hard Soil. You can use email or the post and here's our address. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wootton Bassett, Swindon, SN48DY, UK. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. It's been splendid to share your company. Thanks again for taking the time to be with us. And next time, Brian will give us a further talk in defence of the Christian faith. So I hope to see you then. But till then, it's goodbye and very best wishes from Brian, David, our singers and me, John. So see you again soon. And in the meantime, may God richly bless you. On the